This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. If you're a loser, tune in and you'll be a winner. It's the Moranalytics Podcast. Talking Buffalo sports, Yankees, WWE, 80s music, and pop culture. And now, here's your host, Patrick Moran. Welcome to the latest episode of the future award-winning Moranalytics podcast for Monday, March 5th. I am your savvy veteran three-episode in-host now, Pat Moran. On today's show, I switch things up a little bit. After having the first two episodes feature interviews with amazing Buffalo sports media personalities, I am going in a different direction this episode. And I told you, I told you, told you, told you that this podcast was not going to be just about sports. You hear it right in the intro every week. On today's episode, I interview Kevin Smokler, an author of an incredible book called Brad Pack America, a love letter to 80s teen movies. Man, I love the 80s. Kevin and I discuss Reachers for his book. We discuss some of the legendary movies featured in it, why hip-hop movies in the 80s were vastly underrated, and plenty more. Now, I'm not a complete imbecile. I'm not going to forget about sports. So I also have Pat with Pucks, with my man Tone Pucks, And we're talking about a variety of sports, including baseball for the first time in three weeks. Finally, Yankees, Red Sox, baseball season starting. Can't fucking wait. We also talk NFL draft, free agency starting, and a bunch of other things I'm sure he prefers to not talk about. I also have the weekly podcast MVP and LVP segments. And I'm telling you now, family and friends, you're not going to like the LVP segment. You've been warned, but it's much deserved. All that and a whole lot more coming up. Before moving on with the show, my preference on this podcast is to keep things relatively light most of the time, but I need to be serious for a minute here. I really need to take a moment and offer my most heartfelt, warm thoughts and prayers to Jim Kelly and his entire family, and all their friends. It was absolutely devastating, horrible news to hear Jim come out on Thursday this past week and have to announce to the world that, again, he has oral cancer and that it's returned. I don't care if you're a Bills fan, a football fan, it doesn't matter. Everyone supports Jim Kelly. Everyone was on his side when he announced back in 2013 that he first had cancer and everyone was on his side and fought alongside him as he fought so bravely to defeat cancer in 2014. 
In September 2014, when Jim announced that he was now cancer-free, honest to God, it was one of the best days that I can remember in a very, very long time. I can't believe he's got to go through this fight again. What a horrible, devastating, helpless feeling that must be for him. And especially for his family. It sucks. Fucking sucks. You just get to a point when, when is enough enough? When has this guy been through enough? When has he had to endure enough pain and heartache? Jim's one of the greatest quarterbacks to ever play football, but who gives a shit? Seriously, I don't. And anyone who knows me knows that Jim Kelly is literally, literally one of my biggest football heroes ever, ever. But this ain't about football. This isn't about football glory. Jim Kelly's a hero to so many people because of all the countless wonderful things he's done since his career ended, long after his career ended. He's done so much for so many people on so many levels. He's raised so much money for cancer research. He's done so many things. I don't even have the words right now. It's just hard to hear this news again. It is. It's hard to see one of your heroes weakened and brought to his knees by such a disgusting fucking disease. Excuse my language. I hate it. I'm sure all you do too. All cancer is a challenge. It doesn't matter if it's your first time or if it's a reoccurrence. It doesn't matter. And we don't know a lot about Jim's condition. We don't. We don't know if this tumor's in the same areas before or if it's in a new spot. We don't know what stage this tumor's in. We don't know if surgery can remove it. We don't know other potential options for treatment. We don't know ramifications of these treatments. And we don't know Jim's overall physical health at this point. We don't know any of that. And frankly, it's not our business. All we know is that we are collectively praying for this man. Praying that he can kick cancer's ass one more time. Buffalo and the entire nation loves Jim Kelly. We love him. Our prayers are with you. Please get well soon. Kelly Strong. So getting back on track here. The first few episodes of this podcast were very sports-oriented. I had guys on from the Buffalo Sports Media, Sal Capaccio on episode one, and Tim Graham last week. They were both amazing, had great stories to tell, loved having them on, really helped kickstart this podcast, just as I had hoped. They were incredible guests. But I've been telling you guys, right from the outset, the Moranalytics podcast is not, it's not just going to be a podcast about sports. I'm going to be interviewing people uh, that I find interesting. And that comes from all walks of life. I don't care if it's an actor or a musician or an author, maybe a high school kid. Anyone who I feel has a great and interesting story to tell that you guys, the listeners, can get something out of. Such is the case with today's show. I interviewed an author named Kevin Smokler who lives in San Francisco, California. Why? Because I love everything 80s. I love 80s music and I love 80s movies. And when I found out that Kevin Smokler wrote a book called Brat Pack America, a love letter 
the teen 80s movies, I was all over that shit. I reached out to his publisher, told him who I was, what I was doing. They sent me a copy. I dove in, which by the way, I'm going to be honest, I don't read a lot of books. I really don't. But this book was amazing. I said, man, man, I got to get this guy on my podcast. This could be a really fun interview, something different for sure. It doesn't matter what age you are when it comes to the 80s. You could be 80 years old. You could be 20. You could have grown up in the 80s, or you could just be a teenager now. It doesn't matter. If you like 80s movies, and especially 80s teen movies, you're going to love this guy. Kevin Smokler is a very gifted and talented writer. I think you're going to like this interview. I really do. So here's that interview with Kevin as we take a trip down memory lane. And then immediately after, I will be talking plenty of sports as Tone Pucks joins for our Pat with Puck segment. I'm joined by Kevin Smokler, the author of an excellent book called Brat Pack America, a love letter to 80s teen movies. Kevin, it's great to have you on. How are you doing? How are things? Hey, Patrick. Thanks so much for having me on. This is fun. Where are you from, Kevin? Uh, I am originally from Ann Arbor, Michigan. I grew up in the shadow of the University of Michigan, and uh, which makes me a, a crazy University of Michigan football fan. Oh, no. That's strike one, Kevin, right there. Are we off on the wrong foot already? <laughs> <laughs> well, typically I would say no, but I think of Michigan, I think of Tom Brady. I think of Tom Brady. I think of the New England Patriots. I'm a Buffalo Bills fan. I hate the New England Patriots, so I hate Tom Brady. And by association, I probably hate Michigan. <laughs> yeah, I, you know, that that's a logical train of thought. I, I can I can say, and this is a lame excuse, but I can say, like, I left Ann Arbor in 1991 when I graduated from college. So I kind of missed the Tom Brady era, which was just fine because I, I can't stand Tom Brady and the New England Patriots either. Oh, right. Um, so we're back on the same page already. I love yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. I was I was actually I was actually growing up there during the Jim Harbaugh era when Harbaugh was when Harbaugh was the quarterback and Bo Schembechler was the coach. Okay. So that's kind of my idea of what Michigan football is. And, and and you know, I've I've dipped in here and there when Charles Woodson and, and Desmond Howard won the Heisman and stuff mm -hmm. like that. But no, I I, I do not proudly claim Tom Brady okay. as, as a Michigan. Pre-Tom Brady, Michigan, is that, yeah, I can exactly. accept that. That's fine with me. Mm -hmm. Now, where, uh, where did you go after Michigan? I went to college in Baltimore. I went to Johns Hopkins to the creative writing program there. And Johns Hopkins is a huge lacrosse school, which coming from the middle of the country, I didn't know the first thing about. Right. Um, and uh, Baltimore, it was a really cool time to be in Baltimore, though, in the 90s, because that's when David Simon was starting to make TV. Mm -hmm. um, and Homicide was being filmed in Baltimore then. Right. And and David Simon, you know, because he was originally a reporter at the Baltimore Sun, this is before The Wire and 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 Deduce and all that kind of stuff. Um, he uh, he would come by the uh, the journalism classes at Hopkins. So like I, before he was a big famous TV guy, I just, I just knew him as someone who used to, who used to come around school when I was in college. So yeah, it was a really neat time to be in Baltimore. Um, and I graduated from there in 1995 and I, I, I stuck around for a couple of, a couple more years. Cause I really didn't know what the hell I was doing with, with adulthood. <laughs> <laughs> Understandable. Did you, uh, now, now you live in the San Francisco area currently, correct? 
Yeah, yeah. I went to my next stop was in 1997. I went to I went to graduate school at at UT Austin, uh, and that was a really interesting time to be in Austin. Austin was growing like crazy. Every time you turned around, someone was building a skyscraper somewhere. Um, and uh, I I moved to I moved. I finished school in 2000 and I moved west because I, 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 there was a bunch of people from Ann Arbor who I grew up with out there. I just like to say I was out of coasts at that point. Like I'd lived, I'd lived in the middle of the country. I'd lived on the east, the south, and so the west was all that was left. And yeah, I moved out there in 2000, um, and uh, that's where I kind of I, I had always written and I had written for newspapers and magazines in Baltimore, but that's where I started kind of taking it seriously once I got out there. Well, before we, and again, we'll talk about your book in a few minutes, but. I'm always fascinated with writers. I always wanted to be a writer, never made it as a writer, but (laughs) as a writer, when you were, is this something that bit you at a very young age? Everyone, it clicks in at some point. When did it click in for you that, you know what? I'd love to be a writer. This is what I would love to do with my life. I, you know, it's funny. It it came to me kind of pathetically late. Um, I was always good at it and I always did it. Um, but I didn't, I didn't really like doing it. So I I didn't see like signing up for a career where I like, like willingly, um, where I had to do something every day that I didn't really like doing. Um, I, I figured like if circumstances forced me there, that was one thing, but like, I wasn't gonna, I wasn't gonna stick my head in the vice, you know, willingly. But then I, you know, what happened is that, you know, that Malcolm Gladwell 10,000 hours thing, I just, I just kept at it because I was good at it and I liked seeing my name in print and I liked trying to figure things out and I liked the opportunity to learn more about the stuff I liked already, you know, movies and music and books and, and, uh, and, uh, pop culture and, and right. And writing is a really good excuse to kind of dive into that stuff real deep. Um, and then it really didn't didn't happen until I was until about seven or eight years ago. You know, I'm 44 now. And so I was probably in my mid thirties then. And I realized that every day job I'd ever had, um, I was always, I was always sort of being, I was always sort of at the end of the day, I was saying to myself, Oh, that was nice. But like, when am I going to get to write? Like, when am I going to get to go to go back and do that thing? Um, and so finally, I just I just sort of listened to myself and said, well, maybe maybe instead of asking, when are you going to get to do that? Maybe you should just do that. And so my wife and I were newly married at that point, And I, I had this heart to heart with her. And I was like, I, I kind of want to do this like like all the time. And she's like, all right, well, like, let's let's take a look at, you know, the books and see if we can figure that out. And we, you know, talk with each other. We talk with an accountant. We, uh, we had a lot of, we had a lot of hard conversations. We realized sure. we were never going to, we realized we were never going to, you know, live on 12 acres of land or anything like that. But, um, <laughs> but that's okay. So, you know, we all make choices. And so this was mine. And so I've been doing it. I've been doing it professionally for about eight years now. I'm talking to Kevin Smokler, author of Brad Pack America, a love letter to eighties teen movies. Among other places you can find it, and the most simple way that I would say is go on Amazon. Just go to Amazon, type in Brad Pack America, you'll find it. It's only eight sixty nine on Kindle, eleven fifty two on paperback right now. Kevin, I saw a quote. I'm not quite sure where I saw it, but I wrote it down. It's from you. And to expand on it a little bit. Tell me what you mean, because it, it really hits home. And I maybe beyond just writing, it's just a quote to me that it really struck a chord with me. And you said this. You said, "Be bad, be awful." Be wretchedly dreadful, shit ass awful. But you can always get better. 
but you can't get to awful if you don't start. That's a pretty powerful quote, man. Thank you. Yeah, I was I was being interviewed by a, a, a woman who who does a great thing. She she's an editor, and she runs a, a website and 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 uh, and, uh, and and an interview series. And I I even think she does some live stuff in Richmond, Virginia, where where she's based. Um, Chris Sizak is her name. I think I'm pronouncing that right. And I met her when I was on tour for my last book in Richmond, and um, and she asked. You know, she has to interview me. She talks to writers and editors and book designers and everybody kind of involved with the production of words. And she just, you know, she she uh, she talks about, you know, motivation and how work is is made and, and shaped and, you know, born ultimately. And she asked me, like, I think a question she asks everybody she talks to, which is which is like, what advice do you give people who are who are sort of psyching themselves out, mm-hmm. you know, who are having a hard time? And uh, I, I think she may have phrased it as writer's block. I don't exactly remember what question motivated that answer you just read. But the, what I usually say when people say is, what do you do about writer's block? I say there's no such thing as writer's block. And, and I'm not just trying to be funny by saying that. Uh, writer's block is the unwillingness to be bad. Right. Um, because if you're, if you're willing to be bad, you're never going to have writer's block. You're just gonna, you're just gonna, you know, make a mess all over, all over the page or the screen. But, but you got something at that point. Yeah. Very true. Very true. So when she said, when she asked me, like, like, what do you say when people say you have writer's block? I say, just be bad, be really bad and, and be okay being really bad because, because you can always, you can always fix bad. You can't fix nothing. Well, this isn't bad. This book is actually amazing. What I'm loving about this book is that even if you didn't come of age during the 80s, I did. I'm around the same age as you, a couple years older. but So I came of age around that time. I was a teenager. What I love about this book is it doesn't matter if you came of age or not during the 80s. For younger generations, you, you read it and they probably wish they did when after they read it. Yeah, yeah, that that's really been like one of the most fun things that has happened doing this is, you know, someone will show up, uh, someone will show up who's about our age to one of my events or will email me or something. And then they'll show up or I'll get in touch with like, you know, their niece who's like 16 or their son who's like 15. And, you know, there's nothing like there's nothing like talking to a 15 year old kid who's like my favorite movie is real genius or right. my favorite movie is Ferris Bueller's Day Off or Back to the Future or something like that. And you're like you were you were 15 years away from being born when that <laughs> when that movie yeah. uh, came. But to them, it's like it's not it's not like some some relic from their parents generation. It's just it's it's just a living, breathing classic like like it's just always been there. It's like it's like happy birthday or Coca-Cola or something. Um, and, uh, and it's really neat to see that happen. It, I think it's like like if you need any evidence that these are great movies like there's there's exhibit A that like a movie like Ferris Bueller's Day Off has never not been popular. Right. And it continues, you know, I, 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 I've, I've, I've college classmates who now like are high school teachers and, you know, and they talk to, you know, I talk to teach seventh and eighth graders every year. And, and one of them told me like every year I ask kids at the beginning of the school year, what's your favorite movie? And every year, at least a dozen kids say Ferris Bueller's day off. Yeah, that's incredible. You could tell in this book how well researched it is. And, you know, you pen it with admiration for some of, some of the best 80 films that have ever been made. Talk about the process of what inspired you to write this book, because it had to be, at least to some extent, a form of a passion project. 
Yeah, it really was. You know, it, it started with I, I, I definitely like like my my first two books were about books, and that was fun. But I really wanted to do something different. This is my third book, and so I, I wanted to do something about movies. And I, I had this very, very vague, not fully formed idea that like that the, 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 the category of 80s teen movies was bigger than we thought, mm-hmm. that it wasn't just that it wasn't just, you know, the the six movies that John Hughes made that were that John Hughes either wrote or directed that were about teenagers. Uh, I got the sense that there was more to to the story than that. And so I just started looking, you know, I started like, okay, well, find me a movie that came out in that decade where the main character was a teenager. Um, yeah, so I had this, uh, I had this idea that uh, the category was bigger and I was like, all right, well, find me, you know, I'll look around and I'll see if there are movies where the main character is a teenager that came out in that decade. I was kind of surprised that you know, the John Hughes, that Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Back to the Future and Heathers and Real Genius and Dirty Dancing and Breaking Away and, um, you know, and Dead Poets Society were all kind of brothers and sisters. Like, like they're, they're all, they were all made around the same time. They're all about growing up in America. And I thought there was something there, you know, something that tied all of those things together. And so the device I used was like, was, what was it, you know, where were, where, where were these movies filmed and therefore what picture did it paint about, about growing up in America at that time? And that's where the title Brat Pack America came from too. Right, so tell our, and you named a couple already, but tell our listeners some of the eighties movies that you write about in Brat Pack America. Yeah. Um, so like there's a whole chapter on sports movies that includes, that includes, uh, breaking away and, um, uh, shit, what else is in that chapter? Uh, Breaking Away and Hoosiers and uh, All the Right Moves. And um, and then uh, there's a there's a John Hughes chapter, which includes, you know, The Breakfast Club and Pretty and Pink and Some Kind of Wonderful and Ferris Bueller. And then uh, I had another chapter on kind of on kind of computers and technology, which was about which included real genius and weird science. War games. And then, I remember seeing that in there. What uh, else was in the- war games? Oh yeah, War Games is in that chapter, um, and then uh, a chapter on like uh, '80s hip hop movies, which uh, was you know House Party and Beat Street, Wild uh, Style, Wild Style. You know what? Yeah, uh, not to cut you off, but I'm yeah. glad I'm glad you brought up that because you know what? Some of the most underrated movies, in my opinion, that really mattered culturally were '80s hip hop movies that. You know, they, no one talks about them. Everyone talks about the John Hughes movies. And don't get me wrong. These are all awesome movies. But those are very underrated. And in my opinion, anyway, they're kind of important movies, those house party movies in Beach Street to 80s subculture. Oh, I think so. Like, I think those those serve the same function, you know, in the 80s that like the Beatles movies served in the 60s, you sure. know, kind of introducing the rest of the world to to this young people's music that was growing. Um, yeah, and he, there's 55 movies in the book, and, and and I was really lucky that the research I got to do was was a lot of you know watching and rewatching these great movies and listening to directors' commentaries and fun stuff like that. Now I wrote in my notes you wrote about the huge box office success of movies like Jaws and Star Wars and how they kind of like they sort of set the tone for younger audiences to to start dominating the movie business moving into the 80s. 
Yeah, yeah. The, the, those two movies combined, like, like, drove the the this kind of median age of the American moviegoer downward. Uh, you know, it, in in the by like. 1960, I think, I think this is the right number. Like by 1969, the average American moviegoer was 30. And by 1979, the average American moviegoer was 20. Yeah. It's a big difference. Yeah. And, and it really Star Wars and Jaws are kind of, are, are kind of given credit for making, making going to the movies, a young person's game again. Let me read you an excerpt from a review I read online from a woman named Kenya Starflight. And after mm-hmm. I read this, g- give me your reaction and thoughts of this. Yeah. He dives into the oeuvre of John Hughes in the fictional town of Shermer, where many of his films take place, such as Weird Science and The Breakfast Club, explores how some of these films both wax nostalgic over the past and reveal the past darker shadows, charts how 80s hip-hop films helped a subculture enter mainstream culture, which we talked about, and even explores some of the sci-fi and shockingly dark films of the era. That, that's a nice review. What are some of your thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a that's a really, you know, it's a really good summary of what I was trying to do with the book. The, the, you know, John Hughes is kind of what everybody thinks of when they think of these movies. Um, and I wanted to show that the the category of 80s teen movies was a lot bigger than that. And, uh, you know, the hip the hip hop movies, I think, was really important because. Because, you know, not everybody in, in an 80s teen movie was kind of a white suburban kid like they were pictured in the John Hughes movies. Right. And all the movies didn't have happy endings like like the John Hughes movies did. That You know, Heathers was kind of the, the very last 80s teen movies. And it's pretty dark. And, and, and if you start, you know, at the beginning of that decade with Over the Edge, which, is, which was Matt Dillon's first movie – um, which is a really, really dark film. Co- you know, coincidentally, it was also Kurt Cobain's favorite movie, you know, and, really? the, and the song that kind of ends the 80s and begins the 90s is Smells Like Teen Spirit, the video of which was based on Over the Edge. So there's, yeah, there was a, there was a lot of, there was a lot of 80s teen movies with really not happy endings, um, like Over the Edge, like The River's Edge, like, like The Legend of Billie Jean. One of my favorite 80s movies, if not movies of all time, Legend of Billie Jean loved that movie. Oh yeah, tragically underrated. Like sure. I, I recommend that movie to everybody. I, I think I think it's just uh, I, I think it's 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 so much better than it ever got credit for. I think something that fans will really appreciate with this book is that you know a lot of times with several '80s T movies, someone just writes or basically what amounts to re- a review of the movies. That's not what this is at all. And you take a deep dive into the movies that you write about themselves. That that means a lot to the movie. Again, you're not just, it's hardly just a book. That's a review of each eighties teen movie. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like, listen, nobody needs me to say that, that back to the future is a great movie. Like, like that's, I I think we, we, we can all agree on that at this point. But also like, like if you're going to, you know, these movies are, these movies are beloved, and they're also really well known. So my thinking was, if you're going to pick up this book, you're gonna, I, I'm going to want to make sure people people find out something about these movies they love that they didn't know. So that's just gonna, that's going to require a bunch of research on my part. Luckily, it was fun research, but um, I, I saw I saw that as kind of part of the agreement I was making with with anybody who decided to buy the book. Now, who are some of uh? You know, did you interview any actors or writers or any directors uh, for this book? 
Yeah, I, I was lucky that that I got to talk to some of the people who are key in making in making these movies. Um, I got to talk to actor wise. I got to talk to Gede Wananabe, who played Long Duck Dong. I talked to um, after the book came out for for a, a, a related article. I talked to Leah Thompson. I directors. I spoke to Amy Heckerling, who made um, who made Fast Times at Ridgemont High, and Martha Coolidge, who made Valley Girl and uh, Real Genius. Um, I talked to Daniel Waters, who wrote Heather's, and and I also got to talk to Savage Steve Holland, who who wrote and directed Better Off Dead and One Crazy Summer. Oh well. Uh, now you've taken you've taken some tours of some of these places, like. You you saw a Lost Boys tour, which was in Santa Cruz, California, right? Yeah. How yeah. was that? That's one of my. That, that's another favorite movie of mine. How how was that experience? It was super great. You know, I, I got to I got to spend some time with the with the marketing folks of the Santa Cruz Beach Boardwalk, which is where most of the Lost Boys is filmed. Mm-hmm. And we got to we got to check out a bunch of the places where the filming took place, and I talked to them about kind of the history of the movie and what it's meant to the history of the boardwalk. Um, and the amazing thing is like since 2010, I believe, uh, the boardwalk shows movies every Friday night in the summertime on the beach. They, you know, hang a big screen on the beach and people bring, you know, deck chairs and blankets and, sure. and, and watch the movie. And the first movie, the movie that like opens the summer is The Lost Boys. And the amazing thing about that is you're like watching the Lost Boys like in the exact place where it's, it was filmed, basically on the on the strip of sand where you know, the vampires go revving their motorcycles down the beach, um, which is really cool. And I, I got to do that too. That's cool. Now, what are your book aside, maybe from the book, maybe before the book, what are some of your own personal favorite eighties team movies and why? Give me just, I mean, you could probably talk forever if I told you to name all of them, but just give me one or two of your personal favorite movies from the era. Yeah, you know, I, I, I got it. When I, unlike, unlike an average day, I like to go straight up the middle and say something like Back to the Future. Uh, on a day when I'm feeling a little glum, you know, maybe it's something darker like Heather's or Over the Edge or Legend of Billy Jean. I, I think the movies that I, I get the most pleasure out of watching, like I'm just, I'm just happy every single time I see them, is probably, oh, I don't know, probably some kind of wonderful and uh, breaking away. And, um, uh, I just had it on the tip of my tongue. Uh, Lucas is very special to me and that's a good one. And, yeah. And, you know, and, and I've probably seen house party like 35 times uh, and I could see it 35 more. I just think it's, I, I just think that movie is so much fun. <laughs> now being a writer, especially nowadays, it's only part of the gig to be, um, to be successful. You need to have a nice following on social media. You need to be active when it comes to that. Now you have a nice following on social media. You have a, like close around 60,000 followers on Twitter. Social media has become like a really critical part of anyone's success in today's world, whether it's being a writer, uh, a musician, an artist, what, what's your approach towards social media in regards to being able to help brand your work? I, I, I'm lucky that I'm basically extroverted and, and which is not the case with most people who do what I do for a living. And I, I like to talk to people and make friends and communicate. You know, I I I, I don't I, I'm not driven by by the need to put sentences together. That that's that stuff is great, but I'm driven by the need to communicate interesting things to people and and be useful to them. 
Um, so that's kind of the philosophy that goes into my books and the articles I write. And it's also the philosophy that goes in that I, that for me, that goes into social media. Like I, I, I'm mostly there to be useful, uh, funny, amusing occasionally, but mostly useful. Um, so my idea is on my chosen topic, which in this case is eighties teen movies. How do I, how do I tell people who are interested in that topic, you know, interesting things, things they didn't know, um, things that, um, make them see these movies in a different way, in a new light, things they can share with their friends. That it's, that's kind of how I approach it. Are you on the road a lot when you're promoting a book? Yeah. Um, I, a lot for this book. Um, and, and, you know, part of that is just because it's cool. You know, I, I, I can't play an instrument, so I'm never going to be in a band. So I'm never going to get to go. This is the closest I'm going to get to going on tour. You know, I, I have a lot of romance associated with going on tour. Uh, I, I promise you when you, when you've gotten up at four in the morning for the third day in a row and you don't know where you are and, or when the last time you slept in your own bed was, it's not romantic at all, but, um, but it's yeah, I, I I went to I went to about 18 cities for this for the Brat Pack America's tour. Um, and also, like, given what this book was about, it kind of made sense for me to go to um, to some of these places and visit. What's the reception been like for you? It's been great. You know, I this is this is a pretty easy sell. You know, the people who are interested in this topic are the ones who are going to self-select and, and show up. Um, and I, I'm fortunate that these movies are, these movies have done most of the work for me. You know, they're so beloved that any place there's, you know, 20 fans to rub together, I can show up and, um, you know, and, and pass out fruit roll-ups and, um, and we can, uh, and we can talk about the movies and have a great time. I, uh, you know, I, every now and then I've heard from people who say, uh, you know, why, why, why did you have to talk about these movies in a contemporary context? Why couldn't we just leave them, you know, in the past where they belong? Uh, there's people of a certain age who just don't, who don't remember, um, don't have any, a, a relationship with this time in film history. Um, there's people who were kind of, you know, pretentious college students when these movies came out and looked down their noses at them. Sure. Uh, but, but on the whole, like, like, I, the, the reception's been really great, and I, I'm really lucky for that. All right, so when you're not writing a book, when you're not on the road on a tour promoting it, what are a couple of hobbies? What are a couple of things that you like to do with your free time? It's funny. My, my wife and I moved last year, and like 50% of our boxes are, are books and vinyl records, which which I consider about the correct ratio for for one's you know lifetime possessions. Um <laughs> I'm kind of I'm kind of a I'm kind of a real glutton when it comes to that stuff when it comes to books and records and and uh not so much DVDs but I I love to watch movies obviously um and uh you know you live in San Francisco's a, a great food town um I, I really like to go out to eat I like I, I like exploring an adventure I would say is my big hobby you know if I'm if I'm someplace that I've never been before um, I just have a, I, I have a pretty natural and unwavering curiosity. You know, I'm, my favorite thing to do on a day off is to, is to get in the car and to, and to head out on the highway and find a, find a, find an exit ramp I've never been to before and be, and be like, Oh my God, what's on, what's on Elm tree road and just <laughs> see what's going on. Listen, before I let you go, as I do with every guest I have on this podcast, I got to talk a little eighties music. We've talked movies. Yeah. I'm an 80s music freak, I'm stuck too. in the 80s, 
to this yeah. day, I play 80s music more than I play today's music. I couldn't tell you five X <laughs> on the charts today, but I I know my 80s. I, I love yeah. it. I live it. I'm proud of it. And I'm not ashamed of it. Who are a few of your favorite artists from the 80s? Like what kind of tunes, what kind of tunes is Kevin Smokler into from the 80s? Oh, oh shit, man. That that's really hard, you know, because there's so many of them. You know, I was I was, you know, pre- and the funny thing is like, like, I find that's just that that's just such a bottomless well, like even now, even now, you know, in 2018, I find myself saying things like, well, shoot, you know, I never spent any time with like 80s L.A. punk. So because I wasn't that cool back then. So I'm going to go and look into that and I'll listen to Black Flag for a week. Or I'll be like, you know, just today I was like, I was like, you know what? I really don't know anything about New Jack Swing. So I spent like, I spent like an hour listening to, you know, Keith Sweat and Belle Biv DeVoe. Um, I, I know a lot about like, like the second wave of British heavy metal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know, and I, I own like three or four Iron Maiden concert films and, uh, and, uh, you know, some of the, some of the sort of, obviously some of the pop classics, like, I, I think like what I like about you by the romantics is like the most perfect pop song ever written. Um, and they were from Michigan, which helps. Uh, yeah, I mean, God, that's, that's such a, that's such a like endlessly, that's such, there's, that's just, there's a category that like endlessly bountiful and just makes me happy forever. It is. You know, it- I got to, I got to. I'm sorry, I didn't cut you off. No, it's all right. I got to interview. I got to interview Rick Springfield recently. Oh, really? And, uh, oh, tell me yeah, about that. Just, Let's tell me about that interview. Oh, it was for Salon, and he happened to be in San Francisco doing something, and so I begged my editor to to go and so I could go and talk to him, and she said okay, and uh, you know we sat down for an hour over Chinese food because he, you know, that was about how much time he had, and he was on his way to a gig, and um, very interesting guy, um, but you know. Um, someone with way, way more success than we ever gave him credit for, you know, uh, 17 top 40 hits four platinum albums. Oh yeah. Big time. I was I, a big I, time Rick Springfield fan. Yeah. And I still am. And, you know, and, and play, you know, he's 69 years old and plays a hundred gigs a year. I mean, the guy, the guy, the guy is, the guy's not messing around. Like, <laughs> I hear you. And see, that's the thing about me. You know, I wish I had more edgier, and cool answers for 80s music. But you know what? I was just a mainstream pop guy. I was mainstream Moran. I liked Culture Club and Wham and Huey Lewis in the News, Lionel Richie, Men at Work, a lot of new wave stuff. But I liked the pop culture mainstream success acts. And I almost feel like some of the some of the artists that you rolled off. And last week I had a, a writer, Tim Graham on, and, and he went with uh, the Scorpions, which by the way, I do like the Scorpions, but you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, Violent Femmes and stuff like that. I just, I guess I wasn't that edgy at the time. I, I just liked the regular mainstream pop. Maybe I should take a dive back into the eighties and start getting into some stuff that I didn't the first time. Yeah. Luckily, you know, all you need is a Spotify or a title account or whatever your streaming service of choice is, And, and you can do that. Um, I didn't know about a lot of that stuff when I was growing up in the 1980s because I just I wasn't that cool and I wasn't that informed and I guess I guess part of the exercise of like feeling cooler at 45 than I did at 16 is I can learn about that stuff I didn't know when I was a kid so that's been really fun you know I like I like have a I have a running playlist on Spotify of stuff I want to learn about later that I call a study hall because it reminds me of being that age 
And, um, and yeah, and that's where, you know, I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't listening to black flag, you know, back then I, you know, pro- a couple of years ago, I was like, Oh, black flag. I remember seeing those t-shirts around. What's that about? All right, Kevin, listen, man, I, I, I really thank you for your time. I appreciate it. Again, this is Kevin Smokler, author of Brad Pack America, a love letter to eighties teen movies. There's a lot of ways to find his book, but the simplest way, just go on Amazon Type it in. You'll find it. Order it. Buy it. I promise you, it is definitely worth the read. Kevin, again, man, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome, Patrick. This was great. Pat with us. To the victor belongs to sports. Why don't you get the fuck out of here before I shove your quotations book up your fat fucking ass? The customer is usually a moron and an asshole. Okay, a simple wrong would have done just fine, but then... By the time you guys hear this, it'll be old news, but we're taping this segment Sunday night, so we don't know the big winners at the Oscars we taped this. Actually... The Oscars are airing right now because Tone Pucks is an asshole and he doesn't care that the Oscars are taping and that I have to miss a big chunk of the show. I think you did this on purpose. I think you purposely avoided me all day so that I would have to tape during the Oscars. Yo, look at the dude from uh, dude from Green Mile won. Did he I'm win watching, already? I'm watching, I'm, what? He won already? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm watching it with the sound down right now. What is is this, is that what he won for? Did he win for being the uh, the bad guy in Green Mile who stepped on the uh, the guy's mouse? No, he won for being the bad guy in uh, in Three Billboards. I can't believe that you're now. You're providing spoilers to me. I'm not in the position. I can't watch it. I got headphones on. I got all kinds of recording gear around me. And you're not only do you not let me watch it, you're fucking giving me spoilers now. I, I got nothing else going on, man. I'm working with a set of uh, rabbit ears over here. So it's like the only thing I can even put on my television. I'm sure. So, yeah. Listen, I'm sure yeah. your excitement level for the Oscars is obviously not through the roof, considering you just brought up the Green Mile already. But I got to ask you this. Have you even watched any of the Oscar nominated movies? Do you even know what they are? I did. I did. Um, let's see. Which ones did I see? I, I fell asleep through Get Out like three times, but eventually in segments I watched it all, and and I saw the post and was somewhat underwhelmed by it, mainly because you know it's gotta just kill with that sort of cast, and, and I don't think it killed. So I got two. I got what two under my belt. Two out of nine. That's not terrible, I guess. I also watched nine? the post, and I, I agree with you too. Yeah, there's nine category or nine nominations for best picture. I saw the post and I actually agree with you hundred percent. And this year's different for me the last couple of years. Cause I guess I really don't have anything to do with my life. I've made it a point to watch every single film that was nominated, not just for best picture, but for every category, literally the last, I think two years running now I've watched every film for actor, actress, supporting actor, actress, director, and best picture. Just because when the Oscars come on, I like to have an informed opinion but then I realized it's pretty much a waste of time because I hated almost all the movies anyway. Now this year, I watched uh, I watched the post. I did not watch Get Out. I watched Dunkirk, which was pretty good, and I watched Three Billboards outside Ebbing, Missouri. 
Everyone needs to see that movie. I think that's going to win. I think when you listen to this tomorrow or whenever you hear it, that's going to be the winner, the big winner. It could have been one of the best movies in decades had it not been for an ending that I'm sure a lot of people don't like. But that movie was incredible. And obviously, by you spoiling it, Sam Rockwell from that movie already won Best Supporting Actor. (laughs) I'll talk about the Oscars all night, so I better get off that shit. It's not my fault they gave it away so early. It's like, you know, I mean, that's a pretty big award to be given out like already. They always start. Every Oscar starts with Best Supporting Actor. See, you never watch that shit. I watched watched back when Billy Crystal came out dressed as uh, as Anthony Hopkins in Silence of the Lambs. (laughs) And no one will ever compare with Crystal as a host. And it's all been downhill since then. That's my opinion on it. (laughs) Let's all right. Let, let's get off the Oscar now. Let, let's get into some sports. What do you got regarding the Buffalo Bills quarterback situation? Uh, I got probably more than 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 you or the listeners want because I remember last week. You know, you said you didn't want to make this Pat with pucks uh, talks about Bills quarterbacks, but I can't go without bringing up this past week uh, at the combine. Um, you know, last week when we talked, man, it was it was reported that the Bills wouldn't cut Taylor, that they'd look to pick up the six. Uh, I felt like they were just kind of dangling it out there. It's not that I didn't take them at their word, but I, I thought it was a bit of a um, a bit of posturing. But for both McDermott and Bean to go to Indianapolis this week and double down on that report um, says something you know, pretty uh, eye-popping to me as far as just how much they're going to dip their uh their feet into the quarterback market and free agency and i think it's i think we have our answer i think it's not very much i think that tier of uh you know uh of vikings you know i call call it the viking tier um you know and you might add you know mccarran to it or something like that but you know from the way they're talking about taylor as non-committal as it may be to the season the way they're talking about it just leads me to believe you can forget about that starter via free agency that, you know, a lot of people were thinking, um, you know, might be the placeholder for the inevitable, uh, rookie. And, and that, that changes things a lot. Like unless they plan on signing a guy and trading Taylor or finding a suitor for Taylor, um, within, the, the the legal tampering period. I mean, what guy's going to sign here knowing that they've already made a commitment to keeping uh, Taylor on the roster? It really muddies the waters there as it relates to the upper tier of um, of free agents. And I think I think that's off the table now, and that's big news. All right, because if the upper tier of free agents is now off the table, and we don't think that. Uh, you know, that that Tyrod Taylor is going to be the starter, although I think you you think that's possible more than I think that's possible. But I think we're right back to Peterman, the Rook, and a journeyman. And I think this this week's uh, news that, you know, that they're going to um, give Taylor the, the signing bonus, I think indirectly, that's just another uh, another thing pointing in the direction of, of Peterman and a rookie being the you know, the heart of, of that quarterback room to start this year. I agree with you there. If Tyrod, if they don't 
trade him. And they still could trade him. I don't think they're paying him the $6 million and then dumping him. I just don't think it's going to happen. If you take the money that you still are on the hook for after you cut him and then sign a guy, like, say, one of the Minnesota guys, not, not Case Keenum because he's going to be too expensive. I'm talking Bridgewater or Bradford. A guy along those lines, you add up that money plus the dead cap money, you're paying $22 million for quarterback anyway. I think at this point, it's sort of becoming at least semi-obvious to me that the direction that the Bills are going to go in quarterback is keeping Tyrod around for one more year and going all in on the draft. And speaking of that, I did put up a poll on uh, my Twitter earlier this week, and I asked Bills fans, I said, if you only had one path to get there, would you give up both first-round picks, which the Bills own the 21 and 22 pick, a second-round pick, which would be 53 overall, and a fourth-round pick next year? So you're talking two firsts, a second, and a fourth in 2019 to move up to number four in the draft. Would you do it? 65%, pretty much two-to-one fans said that they would move up. If you're Brandon Bean right now and you have that opportunity to go up to four, which I believe is Cleveland owns the four pick currently. If you're Brandon Bean, do you give up those assets right now to move up to number four? Yeah, if you're if your uh, opinion of the of of the can't miss guy, if you are favorite of the three, four, six, you know, whatever you want to put in the hat, um, if your favorite is there. Then yeah, if you know if you if you're in love with Rosen and he's you know he's sitting there for you, then yeah, your your two ones, a two and and a and a four next year. I don't know that that's going to be enough to tell you the truth, but I have I've come to the conclusion as it relates to the draft. If I can still have a first rounder this year, which obviously they would have in any trade up scenario. So if I end up with a high one this year, still have one of my two twos, okay, um, and don't have to give up next year's one or two, I can live with it. I, you know, so that that's what it comes down to for me. If I can still have one day one pick and two day two picks, and I don't, uh, I don't have to dig too deep into next year's then yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm doing it. And I'm doing it more likely now that I believe they are no longer going the path of a legitimate starting NFL quarterback in free agency, because if they were going with a Bradford or a Bridgewater or a Keenum, whatever, okay, then I could live with a Rudolph. I could live with, um, you know, taking a, a little bit of a, of a chance in your spot in the first round because I like what we have going on um, in the placeholder. I think we could win with the placeholder and I think we could maybe have a two year development with our first round quarterback. But if we're not going with what I believe is, is a, you know, an upgrade over Taylor, a, a placeholder that you can ultimately make the playoffs with, um, if we're not going in that direction, then it is unquestionably a one year at most development. Uh, if not, maybe a guy that can, you know, that can slot in as early as this year. So at that point, yeah, you're going up and you're, uh, you're looking for a home run. I think Josh Rosen is the only guy that I do this for at four. I wouldn't do it for Josh Allen. And I, I'm not as crazy about Sam Darnold as other people. I love personally, I love Baker Mayfield, but you don't got to go up to four to get him. He's unless something really crazy happens between now and the draft. 
I think Mayfield's the fourth guy off the board. Josh Allen's really impressed at the combine with interviews and his arm. He's going to go really, he might go number one. He's going to go high, definitely in the top three. I think Mayfield is the fourth quarterback. That's the guy I really would love to see the Bills end up drafting. They, they're they not going to get him at 21. That's not happening. There's too many quarterback teams out there that are needy, but they could move up, but not have to go up that high. I think that's a little bit too much of a price to pay to get somebody like that who who's just not a, not a sure thing. I don't know what it is. I, I really like Rosen, though. He's the one guy that I would move up to four, and I also don't think it's so clear-cut either. I mean, I know it sounds good in theory. Yeah, you give up this pick and that pick, and you still have a certain amount of picks, but you know what? This team needs a lot right now, and they're going to rely on the draft to get a lot of the guys they need. So to basically trade potentially, you know, three starters for one pick, I'm not sure that I want to do that. But I will say this, if Tyrod's back next year and it's Tyrod and Nate Peterman getting a quarterback at all costs, even if you end up overpaying, you got to. You you cannot go into the season with Tyrod Taylor, Nate Peterman, and a maybe guy like a Mason Rudolph or or somebody after that in, in one of the later tiers. I mean, you if you're going to come back with Tyrod Taylor for 2018, which fans aren't going to like, but I don't think it's the worst thing, you better go all up. You better move in and you better go get one of these top three or four quarterbacks. There's no question in my mind about it. I, I agree, but where I just stopped short is um, I don't think there's any chance of, of Taylor returning. I think they're playing. I think they're they're – they are absolutely gambling on being able to move him. And I think they would move on from him and cut him, you know, just before camp begins or something like that. Something that would really dog him, something that would really make his teammates, uh, you know, not very happy with, uh, with the organization, but I do not see them um, entering camp with, uh, with Taylor on the roster. I just, I just don't see it. I, I think they're, they're taking the gamble that when the musical chairs of off season quarterbacks, um, when the music stops, someone's going to be left out and that somebody is, you know, someone they, they think they can, uh, they can move Tyrod to, you know, for an asset. I just, I don't see him being here. You don't, but. you don't think if they cut, if they ultimately they trade or cut Tyrod, you don't think they're going to add a veteran. I can't see them going into camp under any scenario. And I don't care if they move up to number one and take Josh Rosen or Darnold, whoever, I don't see them going into camp with Nate Peterman as the veteran, so to speak quarterback on this roster. If they move on from Tyrod after paying this bonus, which I don't think they're going to. I, I I ultimately think they're going to end up keeping him. But if they move on from him, they better go out and get someone. Matt Moore, they better do something. They will. I, no, I, I do think they will do something. I just don't think they're going to be in that first rush of, uh, of, of guys. I think it's going to be a second-tier guy, a guy that, uh, you know, they'll say, oh, he's just coming in to compete. And um, it's not going to be obvious to the rest of the uh, the NFL world that um, that this guy will ultimately hold Taylor's spot, you know. And, and the guy that keeps coming to mind here is uh, is Derek Anderson, I, you know, from from Carolina. They liked him there from from things I've read and stuff like that. That's you know, he's so per- so fucking unattractive. <laughs> I, I hear you, man. 
I hear you. It's going to be. It's 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 going to be. It's going to be an unattractive veteran because it's it's not going to be Taylor and who who is signing here after what the Bills said this past week. Is Sam Bradford going to come in take a visit with you? All right, after you just said Tyrod Taylor's on our roster, so now Sam Bradford walks into town and he knows he's got Ty- Taylor to compete with and everybody knows that they're drafting a rookie. No veteran is coming here, you know, no no one looking to start, all right, or capable of starting. No one in that Again, in in that uh, in that Viking tier of guys or AJ McCarron, those guys are now out of the picture. They're out of the picture, and Tyrod's not here either. He's uh, I'm being point blank, 100%. Dude ain't playing a snap for the Buffalo Bills in 2018. Period. I don't period, agree. Period, period. I don't agree. We'll wait. I mean, we'll wait and see. I do. I will say this though: if they do move on from Tyrod, I think it's going to be sooner than later. They realize that they can't get a trade partner. They dump him, and the guy before we move on from quarterbacks that I could see the Bills signing if it's a veteran free agent out there who will have a chance to compete, and maybe if he plays well, stay around for a while. Is Bridgewater? He's the one guy out there that I am at least semi intrigued by. That maybe if they do get Bridgewater, then maybe they don't move up and try to get Rosen or Baker Mayfield. They stand pat at 21 or 22 and see how the draft falls to them. I, but I just don't. I, I see Tyrod being back if they pay him that bonus, which it sounds like they're going to. Listen, before we move on from the Bills, uh, Vontae Davis signed, eliminating EJ Gaines from coming back. What, what are your thoughts now that Vontae Davis is a Bill? What did you think? I was pretty pumped. You know, I got the, uh, I think I got the message from you when I came out of a, uh, I think it was a high school basketball game I went to check out and help me remember that thought. But I liked it. You know, I mean, you know, he's a guy that we know has had a great deal of success in the league. Uh, I would have loved to see two years instead of one, you know, but he probably wanted the one as much as, as much as anything. The Bills know they're heading towards having to, likely pay a big contract to Trey White, you know, within the next three years or so. So they're always going to have to, you know, they're always going to have to be creative at that other, uh, at that other corner, which is why I, I, I didn't like the idea. Uh, well, I liked the idea. I just didn't, didn't like, didn't think that they were bringing gains back. They're always going to have to be creative opposite, opposite Trey White and I think uh, this, you know, this signing is a, is a sign that um, that they know that and that they are going to be creative there. You know, look to look to mold a future guy in the next couple of drafts. It was a solid play, just a solid, solid move. And if they were able to piggyback Chris Ivory with uh, with that signing, well, that you know, kudos, it would be kudos on that one too. Hopefully, we we get some sort of news on that this week. Not counting, moving on from the Bills, not counting Kirk Cousins, who uh, uh, reportedly Minnesota and New York Jets seem to be the two teams, and Denver, three teams, I'm sorry, that really seem to be all in on him. Is there a free agent out there, not counting him, who you're most intrigued to see where he ends up around the league? You know, I, I think because I have resigned myself to the fact that the Bills are not going to be major players in the in the top tier of free agents, not only quarterback, but, you know, across the board, I haven't really embraced the, uh, the current free agent list enough to really care who goes where, <laughs> to tell you the truth. 
you know, so so the answer is dull as it may be. No, I don't I, I don't have any interest to see where guys go. It's all about where those quarterbacks end up that uh that piques my interest the most. Well that I, I am interested to see if uh oh who's the who's our uh former uh inside linebacker, the real fast uh one that we let go to the to the Redskins that just said he was Zach Brown? Yeah, Zach Brown trying to get like $10 million a year. That's uh, I want to see how that one plays out. And I want to see what, what Preston Brown gets. All right. I think, you know, I hear guys this week talking about, oh, I bet you the Bills would love to bring him back for three or four. Man, double that. Okay, double that. I, I think Preston Brown's getting between six and eight. So I've got some interest in the in the figures for just, you know, what uh, what some of the Bills you know, free agents go for, you could, you could throw Jordan Matthews in that mix too, you know, so I'm interested to see uh, what that landscape looks like. But in terms of, you know, team match with, uh, with certain free agents, nah, you know, just, just, just taking kind of a global approach to it. You know what? Let's switch gears. I, I've been waiting for, this is our third episode now. I've been waiting pretty much three weeks to talk actual baseball. So let's go there. Let's finally go down that street. The Red Sox, Last week, signed J.D. Martinez, but it wasn't official, so we didn't talk about it. It wasn't official then, but it is now. The Red Sox get J.D. Martinez for five years. I personally, and I'm a Yankees fan, I think this was an incredible signing for Boston. I really do. I don't think he's the player that Stanton is, and that's, so that's not where I'm going with this, but when you add in the years and, and the dollars, he's getting $22 million, but only over five years compared to what Stanton's getting. I actually think that Boston might have the better deal by getting J.D. Martinez. This is going to be shaping up as it usually is, but 2018 is really looking like a big year for that Yankees-Red Sox rivalry. If if you love or hate those teams, either or, this looks like it's going to be another one of those great years. Who do you think has the advantage going into 2018, Yanks or the Sox? I feel like we might have had some sort of mix-up in communication because when I got your 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 uh preview for for this uh for this show i thought we were talking about the blue jay signings of jaime garcia's and sung young ho uh in the bullpen so <laughs> you want, i mean you want to you want to talk about this this jd martinez guy or whatever you know don't just don't sleep on the you know don't sleep on the uh the birds north of the border um you got to be kidding me are you being sarcastic? Oh, yeah, part. Look, let me just, I, it, it, we, we won't make it about them, but we'll have some time to talk, you know, you and I as the, uh, as the season nears on just how brilliant of an off season economically and depth wise, you know, the Blue Jays have operated. I but, don't know anything uh, about that. I, I believe you. I know you're a Jays guy. All I know is I read right. that it's fucking March and Tulo's not going to be ready for opening day already. I read that today. Is he still with Toronto? It's March. He's not going to be ready for opening day. Well, that's why you go out and you get yourself an Almedis Diaz, okay? I mean, <laughs> they're they're deep. That's all I got to tell them. They're deep and they're ready to they're they're they'll be able to overcome those injuries. Okay. Those inevitable uh Troy Tulowitzki and uh Devon or Devin Travis injuries. All right, back to the Yanks and and the Sox. It should be dope. All right. I mean, the the JD Martinez signing by the Sox last week, it didn't um, it, it didn't really jump out at me as something because I swear 
I just never saw him ending up anywhere else. All right. It was always going to be the Sox, you know, as far as I was concerned with Martinez. And you look at that, that outfield now of Martinez, Betts, and Benatendi, um, and, and, and Bradley. I mean, it's nuts. You know, that is just, that is a formidable, formidable, uh, lineup. And obviously, you know, the Yankees, you know, made their move much earlier in the off season, but those two teams are going to hit the shit out of the baseball. There's no doubt about it. You know, it, it, it should be a lot of fun. Should be a lot of fun. I've spent all winter having to hear about Manny Machado going to the Yankees, either trade or that he's signing there next year. You know, the Yankees got a nice young third baseman in Miguel Andahar that I really like. Kid's got freaking four home runs already through spring, in the beginning of spring training. Kid could hit the ball. I, I'm over hearing about Manny. Let's talk about that next year. Is there anyone, any prospect or any young kid out there that, that you know, that has your attention right now? You mean besides Kevin Pillar? Besides Kevin Pillar, yes. Let's not count <laughs> Kevin Pillar. I don't know. You know, I'm all, my, my kid, I have, I have a 14 year old who lives and dies by the Jays. And, uh, and, you know, it's all I'm hearing is, you know, I'm getting, a, I'm getting a ton of, a ton of news from him. And the, uh, the Bisons, to tell you, to tell you the truth, is, is, is where I've got a little kind of, uh, surprise interest going into this year in terms of under the radar from our usual, fantasy uh fanatic attitude um you know the jays have built the uh uh have built the farm back up a little bit and you know after years of the mets depleting it and the jays depleting it you know here in buffalo there are some really really good young prospects uh slated to either start the season in buffalo or you know get here at some point and um i'm I'm just I'm I'm excited to see some uh some good some good ball at that uh uh at that field for the first time in a long time. You know, I got to get I got to get my loser ass to a couple of spring training games this year. I didn't go to any last year and it's pretty goddamn embarrassing. Where I live in Florida, there's I am literally um 15 minutes away from where the Pittsburgh Pirates have spring training. Um 30 minutes away from uh, Ed Smith Stadium where the Baltimore Orioles play. Um about an hour from Tampa with the Yankees. Maybe a little outside of that where Philly plays in Clearwater. I got to get to some games. It, I'm embarrassed to call myself a baseball fan and live on the co Gulf Coast of Florida and not fucking see any spring training games like I did last year. That can't happen again this year. I can't let that happen. From what I see from the prices, that would that would discourage me from going. I mean, I see... You know, I, I can get I can get to a, a regular season game in Toronto for less than ten bucks, and you know I see spring training games going for a minimum of twenty five. I, I don't need to see a ball guys in Florida that bad. Yeah, but you know what? It, it's really I'll tell you what. I don't know what stadiums you might have been to for spring training games before, but I love it. it it's worth the money. You're it feels like you're right on top. You're right on top. The state. I mean, these stadiums are from seven to ten thousand, maybe max. So it really is a cool experience being there. And it's just, you know, we're fucking baseball guys. I don't care what you say. You can bitch about the money all you want. I guarantee you if our locations were reversed and you were where I'm at, your ass would be at a game every week. So I don't want to hear about the money. I mean, 
you know. Let me beat myself I'm up. Watch, I'm watching the Oscars on, on rabbit ears right now. So I just can tell you a little bit about, you know, my current state. But <laughs> if you insist, you know. Want to talk little hoops? Lakers, hot. When did they become good? I thought, I thought they were one of the worst teams in the league. Now all of a sudden they're good. They won five straight. They're like 28 and 34 on the year now. They kicked the, the Spurs. They beat them on the road Saturday. Lonzo Ball was the biggest bust in the NBA. Well, at least according to me, he was. Dude had 18 and 11 and seven last night. I think he hit six three-pointers. Are you uh, are you in on the Lakers right now? Are, are you in at basketball at all? I am. Um, but the Lakers aren't one of the teams that have uh, that have piqued my interest. Look, I you know I paid a little attention at the deadline, and I've also probably paid more attention this year than years past because I bought NBA 2K18 for for my PlayStation. So oh, that always course. kind of dictates my level of interest in uh, in a given sport. But no, you know the 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 I know the Lakers got a bunch of kids. I don't know when they you know, they were drafted or where they were drafted. I know, you know, some of them are high and I know some of them are starting to, you know, some of it's starting to, to, to come together. You know, ultimately they're, you know, they're headed towards a, 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 the freedom of, of a couple max contracts uh, in, in the coming year. It's going to be a fun um, summer for them. No, it will be, it, you know, it'll be sweet. And, it, you know, the talk of LeBron and, and, uh, and Paul George, you know, comes, uh, comes to be a reality, uh, a super team that can match the Warriors. And I, I think it's time to start putting the Rockets in that same breath. Absolutely. Um, you know, if the, if the entire power shift uh, of the NBA ends up in the West, then, you know, then so be it. I don't know how good it is overall for the product, but if, you know, when, when the, uh, when the late show is, uh, is relevant, uh, basketball is still the same as the Yankees, you know, uh, when teams like that are, are relevant, um, the sport tends to thrive. So it looks like they're headed towards relevancy, not this year, but you're starting to see the, uh, you know, you're starting to see the signs that, uh, that they have the, the core group of youngsters, you know, and make some noise. So. Yeah. That's exactly that's how I feel too. I'm not a Lakers fan. I really don't give a shit about the Lakers to be honest with you, but I like when they're good. I mean, they're not good now, but they're inching in that direction. I like when the Lakers are good and when Boston's good and, and Philly and Chicago, those big market teams, New York, the way it used to be. Just like I said, I, I hate the Red Sox, but you know what? I like when Boston's good because it makes for a better rivalry with New York and Boston and the big market teams. I'm just, that's how I am when it comes to sports. So I hope that the Lakers, uh, I hope they continue this path and it's going to be a fun summer. I mean, they got good young players and they got the money to sign two Max guys. I don't think it's going to be LeBron, but they're going to sign two Max guys between this summer and next summer. They're going to have the cap room. Now you mentioned Houston. They've won 15 in a row. They've taken over first place in the Western conference, at least at the time of this taping. Do you consider them? Are they, I know they're a threat, but are they a legitimate threat to be able to knock off Golden State in the playoffs? 110%. I mean, they, they are so good and so deep. I don't see any weakness in terms of, you know, they've got size. They can, you know, they can run it. They can half court it. They've got the, uh, you know, they've got the big man in Capella. Guys like uh, um, Johnson that they added at the deadline. I mean, they have a, and again, the only reason I know this is because I play with them on 2K18. I hardly ever watch them. 
Um, he's not lying. <laughs> By the way, if you're out there listening and thinking that he's embellishing this story for laughs, he's not. He's being dead fucking serious. Yeah, man. They have they have a second unit that could hang with a lot of teams, uh, a lot of team starters. Um, and yeah, I, if I if I were to make a, a, an even money bet right now on the West, my money be on the Rockets over the Warriors. Wow. I wouldn't go that far. I, I agree to some extent. I just don't see well, any Because that's, that's two bets I'm going to make with you when we're done with this. One is that Tyrod Taylor won't play a snap this year, and we can bet on the Warriors and Rockets as well. <laughs> All right, let's end with this one with hoops. J.R. Smith got suspended a game last week because he threw a, a bowl of soup at assistant coach Damon Jones. Former three-point specialist Damon Jones. He threw a bowl of soup at him. What? How do you throw a bowl of soup at a coach? How do you? How does that happen? That's this story starts and ends with how hot the soup was. All right. I mean, that's what I need to know to to form any opinion on throwing a bowl of soup at anybody for that matter. But if anyone was going to do it, I think J.R. Smith would uh, would probably be in everyone's top five for most likely to throw a bowl of soup at an assistant coach. I, I want to throw a bowl of soup at you, not just for making me miss half the Oscars tonight, but also for on my Facebook last night, making fun of me for having a pair of white socks on when I was out with black sneakers. You have been pulling that move off for way too long now. All right. Usually accompanied with some sort of denim short and, the, you know the 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 black sneakers, white sock, and look, I'm no fashion. I'm no fashionista. All right, I think I think we know this, but that is a whack look that that needs to stop. It well, needs to stop. <laughs> to be fair, in fairness to me, it was a it was not planned. I was sitting around. We were just watching TV and decided we weren't going to go out to eat. We were going to have dinner at home. And the last second, literally the last second. We decided we were going to go out. And at the time I had a t-shirt and some uh, sweat shorts on, gym shorts, whatever. I, I just switched at the last second. I put on a pair of decent, khaki, which by the way, weren't fucking denim shorts. They were nice khakis. Thank you very much. And you then I threw on my black sneakers. Shorts, I mean, I'm sure it's the same pair, but well, thankfully for you, the rest of your, the rest of your game is whack anyway. So it doesn't really matter what your foot gear uh, is, is going, but you know. <laughs> All right. Listen, I'm done with you. We'll talk next week. Next week will be a, a fun week because we'll be right on the brink of free agency. In fact, well, I'm sure by next Sunday, by next Sunday and Monday, we'll probably hear of some signings that are already unofficially happening. So looking forward to talking to you about some of that next week. All right, man. Live high football rules. <laughs> Moranolytics MVP. You the real MVP. University of Central Florida linebacker and NFL draft prospect Shaquem Griffin completely stole the show last Friday at the NFL Combine in good old Indianapolis. Griffin had his left hand amputated at just the age of four because of amniotic band syndrome, a congenital condition. But that condition never stopped him from playing football and not just playing football, but being really good at it. He learned how to play with one hand and became a dominating linebacker. 
having his talents get him all the way to college football, where he was a great player over the last two years. Not only was he a two-year starter at UCF, but he was a first-team all-conference selection in both years. And in fact, in 2016, he was the league's defensive MVP after having 92 tackles, 11 and a half sacks, an interception, and two forced fumbles. Griffin became a household name among NFL fans at the Combine this past Friday, and for all the right reasons. Let me emphasize that. A lot of times when these prospects go to Indy and they become a household name, if you didn't hear about them before, it's not always for the best reasons. But this time with Griffin, it really was. That's because Griffin, who's trying to become the first player with one hand drafted into the modern era of the NFL, put up 20 reps of 225 pounds in the bench press. 20 reps. The reaction from the crowd watching, as well as NFL executives, coaches, scouts, etc. It was incredible. It was incredible. Griffin uses a prosthetic on his left arm that he attaches to the bar whenever he does weight training in the weight room, and that includes the bench press. Oh, and by the way, his 20 reps were better than 10 of the offensive linemen who did their bench presses last Friday. After that, your boy came out on Sunday during the on-field drills portion of the combine and ran a 4.38 40-yard dash. 4.38, the fastest by any linebacker at the combine in 15 years. God damn. When you combine Griffin's physical attributes along with his production and his amazing attitude, he's now projected to become a mid-to-late round draft pick. If he does, he won't even be the only Griffin brother in the NFL. His twin brother, Shaquille, is a corner for Seattle. He was a third-round pick in the draft just a year ago. Regardless of when or if Griffin gets drafted or if he ends up ultimately making it in the NFL, what an inspiring student-athlete this guy's turned out to be. An inspiring athlete and a true inspiration to all kids out there who are dreaming big, especially for those out there who may have some form of physical limitation. I hope Griffin makes it. I really do. Easy choice for this week's podcast MVP. You are such a loser. Loser. You're a loser. Moranalytics LVP. My family and my friends all conspired and mustache shamed me. And they beard shamed me. And they facial hair shamed me. I'm not happy about it. I'm in my mid-40s. And I can honestly tell you, I've never in my life ever had a mustache or beard or anything resembling a mustache or a beard. I've always been clean shaven. Probably the reason is I discovered at a young age that I wasn't going to be able to grow a beard. I tried to when I was really young. It just didn't work. I looked stupid as shit. I shaved and I said, you know what? I am one fucking amazing looking guy with a clean shaven face. So I always say it that way. So for many, and I mean many years, that's exactly what I was. I was baby face Pat Moran. Recently, part because I'm in Florida and I just want to switch shit up, I decided, you know what? I'm going to grow myself a mustache and a beard, or at least try to. I'll try it out. See how it goes. What's the worst that happens? A couple days later, I hate it. I shave. Who cares? I work from home. I don't have many friends down here. Who really gives a shit? It's not that big of a deal to change up my look down here. Nobody knows me. I don't have to hear any shit from people if they don't like it. So I say, fuck it, man, and I go for it. 
My wife likes it. My son likes it. That's all I need. That's all you need in life is your family to like the way your face looks. You don't need anything else besides that. So about four or five weeks later, transformation complete. Bam. There's Pat Moran. Pat Moran with a big, beautiful, full, sexy mustache and exquisite side beard hair. Couple patches, of course, but who cares? I get to a point where I'm probably ready to display my new look to the world via, of course, Facebook, Facebook photos, and Facebook Live, and FaceTime, and all that other social media garbage. Whatever. Sure enough, my family and friends see me, and they proceed to relentlessly make fun of me. It was some bullshit, man. I don't deserve that. I don't deserve to be made fun of because I had a big, beautiful, sexy mustache and exquisite side beard here. No, dad. I look like Pablo Escobar. To my friends, no. I didn't go down here and buy a white van and I don't have candy and I don't drive around schools with candy in my white van. Who says stuff like that? I don't. I'm the same old Patrick Moran as I've always been, just with a big, sexy mustache and some exquisite side beard hair. Forgive the patches, but who cares? It's exquisite. The final straw was over the weekend when my sister-in-law and a couple cousins and a couple friends of mine are partying at a bar in Orchard Park. They call my wife. They FaceTime her. They want to say hi and they miss her. So they start talking to my wife on the phone and it's like, yeah, hey, I miss you. I miss you. So, you know, I, I miss them too. So I jump in. I say, hey guys, how you doing? How's things going in life? I miss you guys. They looked at me like I was in a horror movie. I think I might have scared them. My sister-in-law told me I need to shave and she calls me a pedophile. It's just hurtful and it's rude. So waking up the next morning, defeated, hating life. I wake up and in a pure moment of weakness, I shave. I give in. I throw the white flag in. I surrender. I quit. I fold like a tent and I shave. I took the shaving cream and that razor and I did. I shaved my big, sexy, beautiful mustache that was full and my exquisite side bear hair with a couple patches. Gone was my Keanu Reeves during his rough phase of his life look. Now I look in the mirror and I see someone who's defeated. Someone who just threw in the towel and gave up. Suddenly now, I hate my clean look. I look like an idiot. You people, you family and friends, so-called friends, you all ruined it for me. You Buffalo people are mean. In Florida, I go incognito. I fit in. I'm just another clog in the machine. I go to Publix. I go to pick up a couple things at the grocery store. People don't stop when they're shopping and say, oh my God, look at this guy. He looks like a fucking predator. Ah, keep my kids away from him. No, they don't say that. They don't say that. 
They say, you know what? There is a man who has a mustache and a beard just picking up some groceries for his family. They're probably hungry. He wants to get home and cook some dinner for his family. But if I walk into a Wegmans in Buffalo, someone's going to notice me and you say, look at this guy. He's a pedophile. Look at him. Oh my God. And then you start calling me Pablo. I'm not Pablo. Pablo Escobar's dead. I'm not Pablo. I'm Irish for fuck's sake. I'm so mad at you, Buffalo family and friends, for demoralizing me and cyberbullying me into shaving. I can never go to a bar again in Buffalo. My family and friends see me and say, look at Pablo. Who wants to go to the club and be called a pedophile? I can never go get chicken wings again and have people looking at me saying, that's the guy with the white van parked in front with a fucking bunch of candy in his pocket. You guys ruined my dreams of having a nice, full, sexy mustache with some exquisite side bear hair. You know what? I'm not going to let you win. I'm not going to give you the satisfaction of winning. I am going to come back to Buffalo. And you know what? You can call me whatever you want to call me. I am going to grow a mustache again. A big, sexy, beautiful mustache. I'm never shaving again. Babyface Patrick Moran, he's corny. He's dead. Sexy with some patches, beard, Pat Moran. That is sexy. I am. I'm coming back. You know what? And I'm going to buy a white van too. And I'm going to go to Wegmans and I'm going to go to the bulk section. I'm going to buy every fucking piece of candy that's in that entire section. And then I'm going to get into the white van that I purchased and I'm going to drive around your neighborhood right around 3 4 o'clock when your kids get off the bus every day. If your kid's the age of eight years old to say maybe 13, 14, and you see a white van driving around, slowing up, throwing out some fucking mints, guess who it is? It's me with candy and a mustache and some exquisite side bear hair. You guys got me so pissed off, I can't even say beard correctly. I keep saying bear hair. It's fucking beard hair. B-E-R-A-D, beard hair. Beard hair with some patches that my family and friends all shamed me in the shaving off. Never again. Never. Family and friends, you are the LVP. All right, that'll wrap up this episode three. Episode three of the Moranalytics podcast. Big thanks to Kevin Smokler for coming on and talking about his book, Brat Pack America a love letter to 80s teen movies. Go on Amazon and grab that book. I'll also put a link in the show notes. Thanks as always to Tone Pucks for making me spend all week chasing them down before finally catching up to them Sunday night to do our Pat with Pucks. I also got to give props, which I should have done weeks ago, to Jamie Owens for creating my cool-ass intro that you hear at the top of this podcast. If you need any commercial or personal voiceover work done, Go to jamieowensvoiceover.com. This guy does awesome work. Of course, thanks to all you guys for listening. It means everything to me. And make sure you guys go on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to the show. Subscribe and leave a five-star rating too. Again, the links and instructions on how to do that are in the show notes. It couldn't be any easier. I'm looking forward to going twice weekly real soon. 
and I got some really good guests coming up on the pod over the next few weeks. I can't wait. In the meantime, if you guys have any questions or comments, hit me up on Twitter at Pat Moran Tweets. Till then, I'll talk to you guys next week. Cheers. Damn, man. I need a cool catchphrase to end this show. Cheers. Pretty fucking corny. Yo, somebody hit me up with one. Somebody give me a good catchphrase to end the show. I'm not going to give you credit, but I'll be thinking about you when I do.